You ever know when you get up in the morning and you dress yourself and you put on your sock but you don't put it on exactly right and it's just a little off, the little, you know, at the end of it there is just like going up and down instead of sideways and I, I walked up that aisle because I realized I don't ever walk up that aisle there and that's kind of what it felt like I had put my sock on wrong but we're going to make this work folks, we're going to be good. Hey, one thing I did not announce earlier and I really want to make sure that you know about this and please spread the word bring friends being family next sunday will be our christmas service here at new heights it's going to be um, a really really great time a really really great service uh, full of worship and singing Um, and i'm really excited about the sermon next week as we talk about and we've now talked about joseph we talked about zechariah and elizabeth today we talk about herod and then next week we're going to talk about the surprising people in jesus family Um, and so I'm just going to warn you right up front so you don't come next week and be like, oh my land, I did not know I'd get myself into this, is we're going to talk a little genealogy next week. And you're like, yay. You're like, Brian, there's a reason I just skip right over that when I read my Gospels, but please don't. Please don't do that. And next week we're going to find out why we don't just skip over those genealogies. Uh, first things first, I've got a picture up here and I just wanted to reemphasize this. That's tangled, all right, guys? I just wanted to make sure that you... my. My distinct apologies wherever she is at, Sarah. I think she might have stepped out, but please, please let her know. Like Sarah, Levi, I'm really sorry. And if Becky were over here too, but she's not there. But they're my Disney freaks, and they probably were freaking out last week that I called this frozen. It's not, it's tangled. It is clear. Here she comes. Watch this, watch this. Sarah. I, I'm, I'm sorry. This is my attempt at a sorry. This is tangled. All right. The, oh, they were, boom. There you go. And I just ruined it last week because I couldn't tell what movie was what, so. I just wanted to get that out of the way. It makes me feel better. I feel like I've got a weight off my chest now, so I'm ready to go. Guys, as we continue our journey through the Christmas story, and when I said we've talked about these characters, looking at a very familiar story through the eyes of some of the more unfamiliar characters uh, that we find in these different scenes, we come today to one of, I believe, the most unique heinous and oft-forgotten characters in the Christmas story. And admittedly, I think that I understand why that is the case, because it's very easy for us to look right past this man because of his cruelty and his violent persona. I mean, if you think, and when you think of the typical Christmas and what Christmas is made of, we think of what? candy canes and snowmen and hot chocolate and caroling and little babies in a manger not cold calculated ruthless tyrants but i think guys to miss this sinister figure that we're going to look at christmas through his eyes this morning to to just look past that is to miss a large part of what the christmas story is really all about what Jesus is born into, and that's really important, we're going to talk about that later, and what we have the hope of being rescued from. And to miss any of that is to miss the essence of the gospel of good news that we have been given in Jesus, both in his birth and in his death and in his resurrection, which we have been tasked with carrying into this dark and cold and power-hungry and embattled world that we live in. And so I don't want to waste any time this morning. I'm going to get right to it. And I simply want us to get a lay of the land this morning and an insight into this 
who, what I call him the monster of Christmas. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you have your devices, please turn there and follow along with me. We're going to read this whole chunk of Scripture. Uh, so hold on. Starting at verse 1, Matthew chapter 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. Same King Herod that showed up last week when we talked about Zechariah and Elizabeth. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked them, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem and Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Micah 5.2, he's quoting there. This is one of three times in Matthew chapter 2 where he will quote Old Testament scripture and prophets. child and when you find him come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too <laughs> yeah right after this interview the wise men went their way and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem it went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was when they saw the star they were filled with joy actually the phrase there is they were filled exceedingly with great joy they entered the house and they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and they worshipped him. They opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And when it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route. For God warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And that night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Second quotation of Old Testament scripture in the prophets. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. And this is, to me, the darkest and most sickening part of the Christmas story that we would, like I said, be very tempted to just look past because it's not pretty. He is so furious that he sent his soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. Verse 19, when Herod died, probably could not be three more important, more uplifting words than those words right there. When Herod died. An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who were trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son Archelaus, who was just as horrible as he was, 
he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned in a dream for the fourth time he's had a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. And so the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said, he will be called a Nazarene. Guys, all Christmas stories we understand have one thing in common, a villain. I mean, the one whose sole purpose and job it is to make Christmas miserable for everybody else. And if they had their way to make Christmas non-existent. And Matthew's rendering of the Christmas story and the origins of it is no different. And bringing to light one of the cruelest, most sinister villains of all time, Herod the Great. And the villain is not unique. You find him or her in almost every retelling or rendition of the Christmas story. I want you to think for just a minute and and recount some of the most notable villains of Christmas stories that you can think of. Who are they? Ebenezer Scrooge. The Grinch, absolutely, is another one, all right. Well, the Grinch is a complicated character, though, isn't he, all right? He is the villain of that story. Any of the other ones that you can think of in Christmas stories? Do what? Yes, said that, Ebenezer, Scrooge, absolutely. How about, uh, how about you have Harry and Marv in Home Alone? They're the, they're the villains, aren't they? This poor kid left home alone. He's trying to have himself a good Christmas, a holly jolly Christmas, and these knuckleheads show up. Anything else that you guys can think of? Any other villains that you can think of? Mr. Potter and It's a Wonderful Life. Somebody over here said something? Burger Meister, Meister Burger. I heard that this week, and I was like, I have no idea what in the world that's talking about, but fill me in on that later, please, all right? I'm sorry, I'm so out of the loop on that one. Guys, here's the deal. We could, we could go all day and think about villains that show up in Christmas stories, but none of them, none of them combined hold a candle to this guy, Herod. And I'm not trying to beat up on the Hallmark Channel because I did that pretty well last week and I, I took a little heat for it, but I'm back again for some more, guys. But the villain in those sappy love dramas... Can I just play this out? I want you to tell me. And I defy you to come up to me afterwards and be like, you know what? You did not characterize that very well and right. I think I hit it right on. The villain in all of those Hallmark movies is usually the heartless developer that's been on bulldozing the Christmas store or bakery or toy store who's only stopped when the underwear... but there's some understanding or they begin to hate each other but it all comes together at the very end and they live happily ever after <laughs> thank you thank you very much i i told levi that this week and i thought you know what that's really dangerous because people are gonna be like you know what ryan for somebody who doesn't watch the hallmark channel you really have an intimate knowledge of the hallmark channel guys i've seen about five minutes of a hallmark movie before my life and that's all i needed to see to be able to tell you every other one all right all right as the first Christmas story, the first Christmas story told in Matthew has its own villain, but his actions are anything but cute and glamorous 
or a nuisance. They are deadly and they are destructive. I want you to understand the seriousness with which this story poses a problem for God's story. And because Herod is the quintessential villain, the prototype, if you will, I think he is really like where all villains come from. He's not featured in any nativity, at least none that I've ever seen, especially at a Hallmark store near you. Okay, now I'm done, I'm done. Guys, even though Herod never shows up on cards or in nativities, he factors very prominently into the story of the Savior come to earth. Guys, to conveniently ignore the person of Herod in all of his hatred, all of his toxicity, is to ignore the circumstances in the world in which Jesus is born into. But also, I believe, to cut out an important redemptive thread in God's grand story. Under, underneath the silent and the, the holy night is a dark thread of violence and the remnants of a cosmic war that started centuries before you see, I think to understand what is truly going on in this eerie and this very disturbing scene here in Matthew chapter 2, we need to transport ourselves back thousands of years and several hundred pages in our Bible because what's going on here in Matthew chapter 2 is just a microcosm of a greater epic. In fact, someone has said that the characters in this story of Christmas are merely pawns in a larger spiritual battle. We did that this morning. Uh, in, in part, in Bible studies, we walked all the way back to the very beginning of things and all through biblical history to find out the moments where God's plan seemed threatened. And even though it's difficult for us to see, we are part of and we are a player in this larger and same spiritual battle that, as the Apostle Paul says, is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over, and I love the way he says this, this present darkness. And that certainly does describe not only what's happening here in Matthew chapter 2, but a lot of the times in our world today. At the heart of the miracle in a manger in the middle of the first Christmas story is an even greater struggle between good and evil, and more specifically, God and Satan. You see, ever since Lucifer's fall from grace, he and his cronies have had one thing on their mind, and I need you guys to understand this, not only in this story here, but in so many stories of Scripture, and in your story, and in my story. All that Satan is ever thinking about is, I need to do whatever it takes to short-circuit God's plans. That is his number one job. That's all he ever thinks about. And Satan's opening act takes place on the first pages of of God's word, seemingly on the hills of the creation of man and woman, that Satan in all of his slithering sliminess, try to say that ten times fast, by the way, he tempts and he tricks that first couple into rebelling against God and tainting all of creation and the human heart with corruption. Wickedness and corruption and sin come into the world, and the battle has begun thousands of years ago, thousands of years before Jesus ever comes to this earth. But here is what I need you guys to know, not only in the rest of what we talk about this morning, but in every single moment and day of your life, is that Satan's sneak attack back in the garden on Adam and Eve did not catch God by surprise. In fact, I would say it this way, that Satan's best attempts at sabotage are never a surprise to God. They may be to us, they may throw us off, 
but they never, ever throw God off of his plan. God already had a plan in place to turn Satan's attack back on itself. And what's prophesied in Genesis 3.15, I believe I have that scripture up here, Genesis 3.15. This is a message translation of Genesis 3.15. It says, I'm declaring war. There it is. Between you, Satan, and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring. He'll wound your head. You'll wound his heel. The battle lines are drawn right there, guys. In Genesis 3.15. And what happens as we move here into the New Testament in Matthew chapter 2 in the early parts of the Gospels, all of what's prophesied in Genesis 3.15 comes to fruition in a tiny little baby. And you're like, wait a minute, what? I don't, if I'm fighting a battle, especially with cosmic forces, I'm not sure a baby is what I'm using to enter into battle with. It seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? Guys, God's big answer to Satan's massive threat is a helpless, defenseless, vulnerable baby. But that's how God operates, isn't it? In fighting back against this present darkness, he makes himself more and more vulnerable. I, I, I challenge you as you read Scripture to think about that. At every moment, you're like, all right, God, it's time for you to show up and you to do something really big here. Now, we do have our big moments of Scripture, don't we, right? Parting of the Red Sea, Israel out of Egypt. I mean, like, big stuff like that, but there are, I think, even more moments where you're like, well, that was kind of ho-hum, God. Like, couldn't you have done something bigger there? This is always, this is often the way that God works, to make himself more and more vulnerable. And guys, you cannot get any more vulnerable than a baby thrown into the world in the middle of one of the darkest, most brutal times in all of history. And it looks like at these points, at every moment that Satan is trying to thwart God's plan, that he is going to easily win because God is fighting him in really odd ways. But I think it's actually the simplicity and the humility of these situations and in these people that God is baiting Satan into his sovereign, providential, undefeatable plan. And that's what God's plans are. They are undefeatable and they are sovereign. And guys, when we read Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus and that he was born in the days of Herod, you can see that he's writing a narrative that is a continuation of what had come thousands of years before I said it just a little bit ago, guys, but Jesus being born in the days of Herod seems to be the worst time for a true king of Israel to be born. But that is secondary to the larger truth that's at play, that the showdown between the powerful tyrant Herod and the helpless Christ child is a clash of kingdoms. And I really want you to see that this morning. I want you to know that about the Christmas story. That really is, to me, the overarching story of the Christmas story that yes, we have a baby, and we have a baby in a manger, and we have all these things that surround the manger and everything, but do not miss the point that what this is, is a clash of kingdoms, head to head. Guys, there are bigger things, much bigger things at play than a manger and shepherds and a few wise guys. In fact, one commentator, Russell Moore, has said it this way, Jesus was not born into some gauzy, snowy, winter wonderland of rosy-cheeked angels and animals nuzzling their
Jesus was chased out of his manger and into Egypt by Herod, who also sacrificed Bethlehem's toddler boy population for the sake of his own power. Doesn't sound like Christmas, does it? But that's Christmas in first century Palestine for Jesus and for Joseph and for Mary and for God's plan. And so I think what we need to do is we need to step back for just a moment. And like I told my Bible study group this morning, it'd be really easy to turn this sermon into like a biographical sketch of Herod the Great. But guess what? It ain't about Herod the Great. But I do think we need to know some things about this man to fully grasp what Jesus is up against when he's born into this world. Who was Herod the Great? What was he like and what defined him? What made him to be the villain in the Christmas story? Why does he even have a title like the great? His greatness extended to the things that he managed to build. I have some some pictures here of some of the things that Herod built in his time. The first one is Masada. You've probably heard of Masada before. It was probably, and to this day, the remnants and the ruins of it are the most impressive fortress complex that anybody has ever built. Guys, you can see that. Look at that thing, how... It rises from the earth, and you would have had an amazing advantage if you ever had to go there and to dig in and, against the enemy forces. Herod built this. It's said that there were many palace complexes there. There were swimming pools. There were saunas here. At Masada, he spared no expense and no luxury in making this place an amazing place. Not only did he build Masada, he built a place called Caesarea Maritima which literally means Caesarea by the sea. It was an artificial harbor that Herod created. He put in there as well to a thing called a hippodrome, which was an arena that at that time would seat, this is bonkers, 300,000 people at any one time. That's part of his greatness. Not only Masada and Caesarea Maritima, but he built... Uh, one, something I talked about in Bible study, this is a picture of the Herodium, which was Herod's winter palace. Conveniently enough, it's just miles from Jerusalem, and it actually overlooks, and don't miss this, by the way, it overlooks the sleepy, tiny little town of Bethlehem. And so Herod would go here and when it got a little too chilly in Jerusalem, and it was also very impressive, and a, a complex walls as thick as you could imagine. It rose from the earth. It almost looks like it's been built on a volcano. He hauled in dirt and gravel and stone to be able to build this up to be impressive. And then we know as well, too, that Herod uh, invested a, a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of money into building the temple. And the reason that Herod built the temple was because he was so despised and hated by the Jewish people that he wanted to do whatever he could to win their favor. And in fact, I think this is what defines Herod, that he was so absolutely insecure in himself, and he knew that he was hated by people, that he wanted to do whatever he could to win their love and their affection and their favor. Guys, that's a massive insecurity. It happens in real life today as well, two people, where people, I just want people to like me so much that I will do whatever it takes so that they will like me. That was Herod. That speaks to me of a very, very big gap, a very, very big hole in this man's heart. 
There were other dimensions of his leadership. He really was benevolent towards certain sectors of society, older people and the sick and the impoverished. He was known at times and at one specific time in, in Judea's history that they were going through a very uh, a kind of an economic meltdown and he literally melted his own gold down and fed it into the economy of Judea so that it would boost that economy and it would save that area. He's a very complicated character. He's not the, just the menace and he's not just the violent, evil tyrant that we know him as in the Bible. He had his good moments, but his greatness could never be attributed to his character. Even his attempts at goodness, like I said, were all about his self-preservation and all about his image. And in, like I said, it seems he had this amazing, amazing insecurity that was just covered up by trying to get people to like him. In short, guys, Herod was a, a nasty piece of work. He was tyrannical. He was cruel. He was suspicious. And he was vindictive. And it is this vindictiveness that looms large throughout the story in Matthew chapter 2. He is a larger-than-life character. He was in his own day, and he is on the pages of Scripture. But that larger-than-life persona was not to be outdone by his legendary paranoia. In fact, some people speculate that Herod the Great was actually a touch insane. Like, literally. Mentally and clinically insane. Herod slaughtered the remnants of the Hasmonean dynasty that came before him, a group of high priests. He executed more than, more than half the Sanhedrin. He killed 300 court officers out of hand just because he wanted to. He executed his own Hasmonean wife, Mariam, her mother, Alexandra, and his sons, Aristobulus, Alexander, and Antipater. Guys, he was so egocentric, in fact, that when he was near his death and he knew that he was about to die, he ordered his officials to round up all of the high-profile and noble citizens who were well-respected in and around Jerusalem and to have them killed upon his death. Because as his rationale went, I know that when I die, nobody will weep for me, and so I want to make sure there's weeping at my death when all of these people are killed. Does that give you a little bit of an insight of how horrible this guy was? Luckily, history tells us that his officials didn't even like him because they didn't carry out that order when he died. As one scholar notes, as long as Herod lived, no woman's honor was safe and no man's life was secure. His vengeance and his cruelty and his bloodshed were of such proportions that by and large, Jewish historians didn't even mention and this is true. If you go to historians, just secular historians, and you try to find the story of his slaughtering the innocents in Bethlehem, you won't find it. You find it in the Bible. And some people will be like, well, why? Why don't you? I actually think it is a, a really twisted testament to how nasty this guy was. So Bethlehem back in Herod's day was so small that probably, and this doesn't, I'm not doing this to minimize what he did, but it was so small that people suspect that at most maybe 20 toddlers or babies would have been killed. And to us, we say, well, like, one's too much, right? But Herod's exploits and the way that he treated people and the freedom with which he killed people wouldn't have even made the front page of him killing 20 to 30 Bethlehem boys. It was a small footnote on the pages of history in comparison to the enormity and the ferocity of his overall violence and his hubris and his pride. 
And on top of all of that, that's just a start. Herod has no legitimate claim to the throne, to the title of king. He was not born as king. He was placed as king by the Romans. Everybody knew that Herod was not the legitimate king of Israel, even though he acted as the king of Israel, seeing that he came, and I wish I had time to explain all this, he came from people that were known as the Edomites. You remember way back in the Old Testament when we have two boys, right? Jacob and Esau. Jacob is favored, and he's the chosen one that the line will come from, and Esau is not. Do you know who comes from Esau? The Edomites. Herod was a half-breed. He was known as an Edomian. He was not the chosen race. And for that, guys, he was absolutely despised by the Jewish people. And you see it, don't you, in this story? On the flip side of everything, Jesus is placed here on earth by his father, but he is also the rightfully born king of the Jews, not just the king of the Jews, but he is the king of all creation. And this Herod is the one whose shadow Jesus is born under. As with everything that I have told you about this guy this morning, and that's not even a fraction of it, by the way, is it any wonder that when the Magi come inquiring about the newborn king of the Jews... In fact, that's a Magi's question. It emphasizes the word born. It says that Herod is what? Disturbed. And it says all of Jerusalem is disturbed as well. Again, the, the grammatical construction of their question makes it clear that they ask about the child who has the legitimate claim to Israel's throne by virtue of his birth. Herod is thus viewed very early in this story and in our eyes and in the eyes of the Jewish people as a fraudulent king on the throne. And guys, in irony of ironies, if you, and we will next week, look back at Matthew chapter 1, and we've already talked about the story, right, of how things don't really look right on the outside with Joseph and with Mary and with this baby Jesus. In fact, most people of that day, especially in Nazareth, that's why I believe God takes them away from Nazareth, partly is because there were whispers. You know, you know, you know he's illegitimate, right? Something's not right there in that story. Here's the irony. The one who is born in obscurity, Jesus, and is recognized by unlikely worshipers, the Magi, the child whose birth is shrouded in suspicions of illegitimacy is in fact God's legitimate appointee to the throne. That's the irony of God's story. On the other hand, the legal rulers, both political and religious, by their clinging to positions of power and prestige, prove themselves to be illegitimate in God's eyes. But this, guys, is how it is in God's kingdom. God's kingdom is not a kingdom that prizes power over the vulnerable. It is a kingdom of flourishing where the last shall be first, a kingdom made up of the weak and the ignoble. It doesn't make the suffering and the hardship in this life any less evil or real, but it does give us the This is a story in the midst of Herod and all his heinousness. It is a story of 
Okay, so when we, when we look at it, our world today and we listen to the news and we listen to what comes out every single day, there, there are two polar extremes that we can get ourselves into. We can be overly optimistic. We say things like, everything will work out, guys. Let's just look at the good. Or we become overly pessimistic and despairing. The sky is falling. Everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Nothing will work out and go our way. Do you see how unhealthy both of those things are? Guys, only in God's kingdom do we see the antidote to the wild pendulum swings and emotions that we usually have in our world and our lives. We have both a weeping heavenly Father, but we have a strong and a triumphant Christ. And as if Matthew just tries to slip in a little jab, we get this in verse 19, and I emphasize it for a reason. I want you to look at it again. When Herod died. When Herod died. I have to imagine when the word goes out that Herod dies. I think I have a picture of Herod, and I want you to listen. I think this is a song that was playing that day. Oh, is it, who's your, it's supposed to have sound. Oh, do it again. I'm convinced that that's where that song came from, by the way, guys. Didn't show up in Wizard of Oz. It showed up when Herod the Great died. Josephus, a historian, writes this about Herod. Herod, now, guys, this is, this is horrible. If you know how Herod dies, it's horrible. Herod died of ulcerated entrails, putrefied and maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions, foul breath that neither physicians nor warm baths could heal. Oh, it screams Christmas. Guys, isn't it interesting that as Jesus is coming on the scene of this world, Herod is fading off the world history map? Don't tell me that that is God's tongue-in-cheek way of showing what and who really matters. His kingdom, Herod's kingdom, was divided up and, and diluted in a manner of decades. There were no more Herods. There will come a day when there will be no more Herods. But that infant king that he tried to end that day, he lives on forever. Guys, the infant king was destined to outlast any illegitimate king. That's true not just in the story of Herod, but it's true in our own day as well. I want you to see that. I want you to know that in anything that you read and anything that you hear and any anxiety that you have and any worry and any fear, there ain't gonna be no more Herods. When it says that Herod was disturbed, that's a massive understatement. It's more like he is agitated. And it wasn't merely an annoyance or an inconvenience like a fly that won't leave you alone at a warm sun picnic. This was rage and ire and hatred all wrapped up with one big side helping of fear and insecurity. It's not exactly a great recipe. Guys, Herod lived in a culture of fear and he ruled and secured his power by fear. He did not know how to deal with people without intimidating them and making them fearful of him. And he saw this baby, this little baby Jesus, as a direct threat to his power, and he set out to squash his plan quickly, even if that threat was in diapers in Bethlehem. I mean, guys, think about that for a moment, right, by the way. Like, imagine that. This grown, powerful man is so insecure 
And he is so paranoid that he is scared of someone who is in diapers. Cloth diapers, not, pam not pampers, but like cloth diapers. He is scared of a child. And if you think Harry was upset to hear about a potential threat, imagine how irate he was when he was defied by the Magi and he was outsmarted by God. You get that, don't you, right? And it says they, they went by, in verse 12, they went by another route back to their country for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. The Magi essentially ghosted the king. They gave him a dose of his own medicine with all the craftiness and guile of this evil dictator. And sadly, we get in the story that he was so irate that he flies into a fit of rage that led him to have every infant and toddler boy under the age of two slaughtered. But guys, this is the way of a tyrannical, power-hungry despot, isn't it? They cannot see the humanity in front of them through the narcissistic lenses that they wear. And in this case, Herod can't even see the divinity that's right under his nose. Guys, it was true of Pharaoh in the early days of Israel's history and right down to our own time and people like Hitler and Stalin and Hussein and bin Laden. Evil has a different face in every century and every period, but the same puppeteer is pulling the strings. Satan himself. Guys, King Herod's character is absolutely consistent with the one who stands behind his evil actions and his intentions. John 8, 44, Jesus says this about Satan, and see if it sounds a whole lot like King Herod and any person who is evil in the Bible. You are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character. Did Herod lie? Was he a liar? Did he base his life on lies? Oh, he's just like his father, Satan, for he is a liar and he is the father of all lies. And guys, it's Herod's attitude and his actions and his intentions, or better yet, I think is a smorgasbord of attitudes, actions, and intentions that we see in the story that I want to take a closer look at with the time that we have this morning. Matthew 2, guys, really is the tale of two kings. And around that, there are a host of postures and approaches to following either of these kings. Take, for instance, the Magi. I want to look at them really quickly here. What are they? they come and they approach Herod and they say, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. And then later on in the story, it says, when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. And then when they saw the child, they bowed down and they worshiped him. Guys, the Magi were truly what I would call, they were seeking these were pagan people who were very influential in their own country, and they came seeking Jesus. And the A word, I'm going to use three A words here to de describe the people we see in the story of Matthew 2. The, the Magi were adoring. They were faithful. They had traveled hundreds, if not a thousand miles to find the king and to worship him. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? For these guys, it wasn't about anything else or what they could get from Jesus. It was just give us Jesus. 
Give us the newborn king of the Jews. And I want you to contrast that with another group in this scene that we see in Matthew 2, the religious leaders and the scribes. Very interesting group of people. If the, if the magi were seeking and they were adoring in their attitude and approach, the religious establishment of Jesus' day was eh, apathetic. If the, if the magi were heart, soul, mind, and strength, the religious leaders were all head, but they were little heart. Instead of being faithful, they come off as very flippant. I mean, notice when Herod asks them about the Messiah, the Christ child, they respond with the book answer quickly, don't they? Where is this Messiah supposed to be born? Oh, we know Herod. He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Oh, the, the star? The star? Yeah, yeah, the star. I mean, right over there where that bright light is shining. But they didn't even take the first step to go and look. Five miles is all they had to go. And they didn't even go that distance to see if this crazy claim could actually be true. That they had been waiting on, by the way, for millennia. Guys, it's an important reminder that you can know all the right information, but you can still miss the point. You can, you can have all the knowledge in the world, but if it never makes it to here, it doesn't make a bit of difference. You've missed the point. And then there's the monster, the one I have given you some insight into this morning, Herod. He wasn't adoring, he wasn't apathetic, but he was antagonistic. If the Magi were faithful and the religious were flippant, Herod was just flat out fake. And notice how Herod uses very churchy language to feign his interest in worshiping the king. Go and find him so that I may go and worship him too. I want you to notice something right here. I want to say this very, very seriously. Lest you should ever fall into this yourself or be deceived by this. It's a powerful and important reminder of how people can easily co-opt religious language in an attempt to deceive, sabotage, manipulate, and destroy. And people do that. It's Satan's number one way and best way to destroy the church from the inside out. Herod had a plan to wipe from existence every possible competitor to his throne, even if it was a baby. But it turns out Herod was not as powerful as he thought. And this is Matthew's message here, guys, that in the person of Jesus, baby that he may be, God has determined to set his child and to put his child and to put the rightful ruler on the throne. Guys, I'm here to tell you, and you know this to be the case, if you're any sort of history buff, the earth is filled with graves and tombs and the like, memorializing kings who have come and rulers who have come and gone and tried to undercut God's authority and power, but they have massively and spectacularly failed. It will happen every single time. And while Herod in this story may have seemed to be impossibly powerful and very impressive, he was no match for this baby and the sovereign authority of God. It's likewise a great reminder that those we think are the most powerful and influential lack any sort of real ultimate power for only one. Only one person, a little baby born in this world, holds that throne. Only one, a Christ child, holds the key to real, actual power. And so we look at the story here in Matthew 2 and we see the Magi. The Magi were seeking God and the priests were ignoring the king and Herod was opposing 
the king. And guys, this is, stop for a minute. If you get nothing else that I've said this morning, I want you to sit up right now and take a deep breath and I want you to tune in. Because I think this is where the Christmas story gets a little sideways and we need to be very careful as we approach the Christmas story and especially people like Herod. Because you know when we read the Christmas story, we really love to put ourselves in the position of the good guys, don't we? Oh, like we, we would totally be the shepherds. We would, we would totally be the magi seeking after Jesus no matter what. But could it be that there's actually more Herod in us than we would like to admit? You see, we're all too often threatened by Jesus in the same way that Herod was. Because when Jesus comes into your life and into my life, it truly means a disruption and it's a threat to our own way of doing things. And guys, if we are determined to get our own way at all costs, we will go to any lengths to eliminate all trace of Jesus and his claim on our life. Guys, Herod's reaction could be and often is our reaction. If you want to be the ruler of your life and another one comes along and says he's the rightful king, then something and someone has to give and all too often we refuse to be the one who gives in. Nope. Sorry, God. Everything else but not, but not this. I will not give in. And we dig in. Guys, it's true in life as it is in a spiritual context. Only one can sit on the throne rightfully. And it is this truth that often triggers resistance in our hearts. You see, some people live their entire lives, and there might be some of you who are sitting here this morning or watching this morning, who live their entire lives trying to make themselves the king or the queen. Some people live their entire lives playing this game of thrones, if you will. Trying to put themselves on the throne, trying to be the ruler and the king of their life. Some people live their entire lives refusing to give up the throne and let God have His rightful reign. And honestly, we all get a bit maniacal when we see the king coming. Because we realize He wants the throne. He wants your throne and your throne, and he wants my throne, and he says, move aside. But you see it, and you understand, guys, right? In, in this game of thrones that starts here in Matthew chapter 2 in the early part of the gospel, in this game of thrones, this is so backwards, you want to lose. This, this game is won by losing. Losing yourself. Losing your life. Losing your control. But Herod's reaction, especially the reaction of the religious, is a stark reminder that there is there's no place for neutrality when it comes to Jesus. We can't just sit on a fence when it comes to Jesus. We either take up arms against Jesus and battle Him to the end, or we lay down our weapons and we surrender our life and our will to His humble adoration and worship. And this is the real question, isn't it, in life? This is the real question of the Christmas story. Which king and which kingdom are you going to follow? Because guys, following the right king makes all the difference in the world. And there is no 
sitting on the fence. I came across a very interesting group of people um, this week as I was studying for this sermon. I don't know if you've ever heard of them before. They were known and they were called and termed the mugwumps. Anybody ever heard of the mugwumps before? This isn't really a mugwump. Right? It actually sounds like something from like Harry Potter, doesn't it? Right? Like, you're like, did, I, did I miss that on Harry Potter? Is that something from Middle Earth? I'm not really sure. Uh, this is not actually a picture of a mugwump. Uh, the mugwumps were a group of people back in the late 1800s. They were a political group affiliated with the Republican Party. But here was what was very interesting about the mugwumps is they never really made a decision. They never really made a commitment in their political lives. In fact, the term mugwump literally came to mean someone who is aloof or disconnected from any sort of persuasion of political parties. And in fact, I, was, I wanted to bring this up here. The definition in the Merriam-Webster Webster Dictionary says this, their independence propped in one 1930s humorous to define a mugwump as a bird who sits with its mug on one side of the fence and its wump on the other. And we laugh about that, don't we, guys? But it's no laughing matter. Because I know this is true in my life, and I know it's true for way too many lives, Christian lives being lived today. We're living with our mugs on one side of the fence and our wumps on the other. And we're not choosing anything. We're sitting on the fence and we're never really making a choice for, for the king we should be making a choice for, the kingdom we should be making a choice for, but Jesus will have none of that, will he? Does this sound familiar? You, you are either for me, and if you're not for me and actively working with me, you are against me. Or does this sound familiar when Jesus says, there, there will come a time when many will say, Lord, Lord. And what would Jesus say? I never knew you. Because you're being a mugwump. Or how about this one? Where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Guys, if you follow the treasure trail, the Magi's treasure trail led them straight to Jesus. If you follow anybody's treasure trail, you will see where they stand when it comes to Jesus. Everyone, every single person who has ever been on this earth is on this earth now or will be on this earth has a treasure and so everybody's heart is constantly up for grabs in a way, with the forces of good and evil battling over the supremacy for our affections and our worship. And like I said at the very beginning, in the end of this in Matthew 2, it's about contrasting agendas or a clash of kingdoms is the way that I stated it earlier. Herod the Great thought so highly of his abilities and his power, and he spared no effort to impress the world with his greatness. He was a schemer who feared the loss of his power and ruthlessly destroyed all potential rivals with incredible cruelty and no remorse. That's one kingdom. Then you have another kingdom. Jesus the Messiah and King of the universe who sought first to do the will of the Father, not his own will. To please and to honor and to glorify him. Jesus also came to bring people abundant life, which required him to lose his life and then be resurrected to return to heaven. You see, Herod and Jesus had wildly different focuses in life, didn't they? 
Jesus gave his life and he gave his ministry as a sacrifice so that the world would know God. Herod's life revolved around sacrificing others in order to bring glory and honor to himself. And because of those different focuses, they each had a vastly different future. Herod's glory and strength were forgotten. He is often remembered as a paranoid tyrant, the man who killed children in Bethlehem as an effort to save his own power. And what do we get out of Jesus? What's Jesus' legacy today? Jesus' legacy continues to impact millions of people throughout the world today and billions over the course of history. Guys, it's all about the eternal over the earthly. So which kingdom are you living for? I'm not asking this rhetorically. Like, oh, that's a really great question. That he asked. No, no. What kingdom are you today, right now, when you sit there in your seat, what are you living for? What focus do you have this Christmas? What and where is your future caught up in? And if it's like Martin Luther, who penned the words, to a mighty fortress is our God, you can say with confidence, there's this little section in the song that I love, it says, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. And then the words that are up on the screen, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. I love the last line. I've bolded it there. One little word shall fell him. And isn't that the truth, guys? As much as we fret and worry, and rightly so, I'm not saying, hey, guess what? Just be a real trooper in this life. And you put on a happy face and everything will be okay. Life stinks. And this world stinks. And is so twisted. But if we can just hold on to that last line and apply that to every single day of our lives. We understand that no matter how much power it looks like Satan has or any earthly ruler has in this life, one little word from God, you're a maggot. That's what God does to Herod. Maggot. That's the power that our God holds in his, not just hand, and like the tip of his pinky. He's got it all under control. He's working his plan. He's, he's worked his plan from the very beginning. He's working it right now. and He will work it all the way to completion. No matter how dark or how cruel and ruthless the people seem to be that are a part of that. I'm going to invite the worship team back up here. They're going to sing just a little bit of the song that we opened up with this morning about Jesus being the light of the world and how we rejoice in that. And if this morning you are here and you're just really struggling through some things, I, I want to offer a time. We don't do this and we should do this more. We come a lot of times and we offer to people and ask that if you have never accepted Christ into your life that you would think about doing that. And I emphasize that this morning, that if you are sitting here and you have never truly accepted Christ into your life, that's where you need to start. You need to put him on the throne of your life and you need to keep him there. But this morning, if you just simply 
need some prayer. I encourage you to come up here and I would love to pray with and for you uh, this morning as they just play through the song a little bit and then sing through a little bit and then we're going to end service off with a really big punch this morning that's going to send us out of here. Um, so let me pray. Like I said, if you want to come this morning and you need prayer, please do so. Lord, do recognize that in life as things get so dark and grim sometimes, a world that seems so gruesome and so messed up, having us ask questions that we can't answer, Lord, you are truly the answer. You are the one who holds the key. You are the one who sits on the throne. And may we, Lord, in our lives, every single day of our lives, continue to wake up every morning and make the intentional decision that what kingdom and what king am I going to follow today? And we would put you on the throne where you are the rightful ruler. You didn't just become the rightful ruler when you were born in this earth. You have been the rightful ruler from the creation of this world. And Lord, so we put you there. And we rejoice in the fact that you bring light and you bring peace and you bring hope to this world. And may we stand in that and may we sing into that, Lord, this morning, that you are good. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.